Hey everyone. So today is a first. I typically speak to solo filmmakers on this podcast, but today we're getting a pair of them and they come in the form of brothers. Now, brother filmmaking duos go back to the earliest days of film. The Lumiere brothers were making films in the late 1800s. And of course, any documentary fan will know of the legendary Maisel's brothers who brought us Grey Gardens, among many other classics. And of more recent vintage, there are the Ross brothers, who've made a string of really cool, unique documentary films that really push the boundaries of the form. But today we're talking to the Kramer brothers. They are Lance and Brandon. And as with any pair of siblings, they have some interesting dynamics. And for their part, the Kramer brothers do admit to the occasional intense argument, but the important thing that the Kramer brothers share is a natural feel for what I call human-scale stories. These are stories that thoughtfully demonstrate how the world actually works, unlike the work of someone like, say, Michael Moore, who is a talented filmmaker for sure, but also a provocateur. The Kramer brothers, by contrast, have a really deft touch for people and their stories. Their 2015 film, City of Trees, might be the best film you've never seen about local government. Today we talk about the Kramer's most recent film, The First Step. This is another film about how government works, or more accurately, how it can work. This time the landscape is the federal government, and the topic is change-making, and it's all seen through the eyes of political commentator Van Jones, who Lance and Brandon follow in the making of this film. The first step has many lessons to share, and chief among them, determined citizens can still make a difference. As can filmmakers, I would note, we need all types in this field. The agitators, the visionaries, the dreamers, but also the quiet, thoughtful storytellers like the Kramer brothers, who turn the volume down so that your understanding can be turned up. So, Brandon and Lance, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Scott. So uh, every film has its own unique backstory. I'm, I'm curious, can you tell me about the origins of The First Step? Yeah, the backstory, you know, with this film, and I think many documentaries, is that it started with our relationship with Van Jones. Um, and, you know, I think most docs start with uh, a, an individual relationship. And so Van we formed a relationship with Van in our first feature film, which was called City of Trees. And that film was about um, environmental justice and green jobs. And Van was a, an executive producer on that film. He's formerly the green job czar to the Obama administration. And he isn't in the film, but we collaborated with him on the film and the release, got to know him. That collaboration and relationship evolved into a second project, which was a web series called The Messy Truth, which we basically came up with with Van over a cup of coffee in the lead up to the 2016 election. Van, as many people know, was on CNN having these pretty intense debates on air with conservative pundits and we kind of came up with this idea with Van to, to have him get out of the studio and be able to actually go into the homes of Trump supporters and conservatives and have a dialogue over a meal in their living room and model for the country how to 
relate and connect and build relationships across political divides at a time when people were really struggling with that. I mean, we're still struggling with it, but at that time it was, it was particularly acute. And, um, we made that web series. It was a totally volunteer grassroots, just Lance, myself, a team of filmmakers in van going into Gettysburg, shot the whole thing in a day released it on Van's Facebook page, and this little web series went on to be seen by over 4 million people. It won two Webby Awards, and it sort of laid the groundwork for a show that Van eventually brought to CNN called The Messy Truth, um, which was the same name as our web series. And, you know, fast forward a few months, Trump, or sorry, not a few months, a few weeks, Trump is elected president, uh, Van, Lance, and I are sitting down debriefing and sort of reflecting on this 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 news. And Van tells Lance and I that he's going to spend the next uh, four years of the Trump administration doing everything he can to try to engage with this administration and try to find some common ground on the issues he's been fighting for his entire life, criminal justice reform and the addiction crisis at the top of that list. And Lance and I, you know, we as deeply concerned as we were about Trump and everything he was going to do as president, we were also equally, if not more concerned about the growing divide and schism in the country. And we felt that we had a relationship with one of the few public figures and, and progressive leaders that were going to be trying to build bridges during this incredibly divisive time. And we didn't know where that would go. At this time, the First Step Act did not exist as a piece of legislation. Van didn't know Jared Kushner. Uh, you know, none of the story of the film was taking place, but he, we, we knew he was going to be attempting to build bridges under an incredibly divisive moment in American history. And we just had a gut instinct that uh, there'd be an important story to be told. So what I, I liked about the film is that it, it really has kind of two thrusts. Like one is a little bit like, what is it like to be Van Jones? But also the spirited push to bring about criminal justice reform. I'm, I'm curious, what was the original focus of the film? And did that focus evolve as you got further into the story? The original focus of the film was really, how can we document bridge building and bipartisanship in action how can we how can we show what it takes and what it looks like and why so few people take this path um you know the first year of filming it was largely van giving speeches across the country from a very philosophical point of view on the importance of coming together uh, during this time. And it was mostly ideas and rhetoric. And then about a year into, into filming, a few things happened. And, you know, as a, as a cinema verite documentarian, you you kind of have to, you know, you, you, you take a leap of faith that a story will unfold, but you don't know what that is. There's no script. There's no, we didn't, you know, we didn't know where this would go. And so to be honest, the first year was a little, uh, 
we, we were a little nervous because we were like, is there a story here? You know, we can't make a feature film out of somebody speaking at a podium. And um, about a year into production, Jared Kushner, uh, you know, a special advisor to then President Trump, uh, basically came out publicly and said that he, as part of his portfolio, as part of the things that he was going to be working on, he wanted to see if he could advance bipartisan criminal justice reform. And most progressive leaders in the criminal justice movement, you know, were very hesitant to engage with the administration because of all the harm that they were causing on so many other issues. And Van was, uh, I think, one of the few progressive leaders who were willing to hear Jared out and really see, you know, is this person for real? Is there actually room to make something happen? And once that first meeting happened, that kicked into gear a pretty long, very messy, very turbulent time where a coalition formed to pass what ultimately became a bill called the First Step Act. And that coalition involved Hakeem Jeffries. Um, it involved Cory Booker. It involved Kim Kardashian. It involved... Donald Trump, you know, Jeff Sessions tried to uh, undermine it. So it was a very, str- I mean, that was such a strange time for, for in American history and such a strange administration and getting a bill passed through that administration required a, a very unlikely group of allies to, to come together. And that's really what the movie is about. So, like I said, there are twin thrusts to this movie. Let me explore the Van Jones side of the equation first. Van strikes me as a little bit of a, an opaque figure, at least privately. On CNN, he's very passionate, very emotional. But as you explore his kind of private side, you can see that he's somewhat self-contained. How did you approach kind of cracking that veneer, kind of getting to his underlying humanity? What was the, what was the approach there? Yeah, it was... Um... You know, having five years of trust going into us beginning filming helped a lot. We weren't we weren't unknowns to him. You know, five years of a relationship goes a long way. But even then, the first six months of filming, it was, you know, we had a lot of trouble having the cameras rolling in his life outside of his public facing moments. So we could film his speeches, we could film these these times when he's sort of in front of an audience, but when it came to him with his team, when it came when it came to him in his home, when it came to days where he was having you know a really tough time or getting blowback for something he said, those spaces I was there without a camera, but bringing a camera in was sort of off limits. And so you know, we, we had to have a lot of conversations around the importance of, you know, I, I would sort of talk to Van and say, look, like I need to, we need to be able to film you in moments where you're triumphing, where your ideas and your rhetoric and your, your actions are really being effective. And I also need to be there at moments where you're, you know, struggling, where we can really humanize this journey audiences are not going to be able to connect with the work that you and your team are doing if we can't see 
the the struggles and 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 frankly we can't see also you know where you know every 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 person has inherent flaws within themselves or, or weaknesses or areas that get in their own way and that's part of what makes us human and i think that's part of what allows us to connect with one another and so we would have those conversations very openly and slowly like shoot by shoot by shoot over time you know some openings would come up the the, the first day that i remember having a really significant breakthrough was the day after the attack in charlottesville i was with van on the road he was giving a speech in nashville and um the attack happened and he went into his hotel room and was on the phone with members of john lewis's team reverend barber uh lots of different civil rights leaders especially in the south bands from tennessee so because that attack happened in in, in virginia there's sort of a lot of religious and civil rights leaders sort of convening about how do we respond to this crisis and i happen to have the camera with me and i just he's on the phone and i just kind of like asked him non-verbally could i could i roll could i film him navigating this moment of crisis and he agreed and once that moment happened i think i i filmed this it actually didn't make its way into the film but what it did do is we we captured an extremely sensitive moment in his life and we did it then we went to the next day that footage went onto my hard drive you know secure place it didn't blow up i think van is used to when he says something or something gets captured oftentimes it becomes a, a nightmare to deal with in the in the public eye and i think he saw that oh it's when brandon films things with me those things are going onto a hard drive somewhere secure they might be used into a film someday but if they are it's going to be thoughtfully dealt with and that sort of helped lift the veil and introduce a culture where i was much more embedded into his life and then at a certain point you're just filming everything and uh you 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 know if you were to ask van lewis jessica you know they uh, there's a point at which you kind of forget a little bit that we're there because when you're filming you know 30 percent of someone's life it, it becomes a less of a big deal when the camera or the boom pole is present yeah i find that so fascinating and I, i've asked this question of many a filmmaker and and I ask you now because a lot of my audience is documentary filmmakers. When a filmmaker doesn't have a camera rolling, is he or she still a filmmaker? And I, I think the answer is obviously yes. What are the non-acquisition aspects of filmmaking that would make a film like this so successful? I think 70% of directing documentaries is relationship building. And a huge majority of that happens off camera. And the first year is mostly just research and relationship building. And um, I feel like if I'm doing my job effectively, I actually don't even really like to be, I, I, I try to build a level of trust and transparency and clarity with not just Van, but in a lot of these spaces, you know, we're talking about U.S. senators, we're talking about activists on the front lines of West Virginia and South Central Los Angeles who have every right to be skeptical of cameras because the media has demonized their communities time and time again. 
So a lot of skepticism around filming in a lot of these spaces and the work I'm doing on a day-to-day basis is really communicating with Van, his team, uh, elected officials, all their staffers. You know, if you have a senator bought in or a congressperson bought in, that doesn't matter. You have to have their whole team, their comms director, their scheduler. You have to know all these people. Um, these advocates on, in the, uh, on the front lines in their communities. I was going to West Virginia and South Central Los Angeles regularly. I was spending time in those communities, building not just the people in the films buy-in, but also the people they work with and they, their families. And so when you do enough of that footwork, then when a shoot happens, when a moment is unfolding in front of the camera, you can kind of sit back as the director, not it's not like you're taking a vacation, but you're you're allowing the cinematographer, the sound recordist, to go in there and film authentically and unobtrusively, and do the dance that they're so mas- that they can so masterfully do because you've built a level of trust that people aren't thinking that a camera is there to exploit them or harm them. They understand the goal of the film and they trust it and can be as natural as possible. Well, I can tell you that because I watch films, I think in a different way than maybe the casual Netflix viewer, I noticed in real time how natural the scenes were. And it was really striking. I kept waiting for somebody to kind of glance in the direction of the camera or to be slightly performative or maybe slightly guarded. Never picked up any of that in any of the scenes. And um, I'm wondering if you could maybe go into greater depth about your crew size and maybe how you approach, obviously the relationship building is huge and indispensable in setting that foundation, but the actual moment when you're in a room where it could be a little tense, a little guarded, what are some of the, what's some of the choreography of your team, the size and how you work to make sure that you don't affect the setting? Yeah, our crew size is typically it, it, it well it ranges, but I would say on average it's typically three to four people. It's myself, a field producer or producer or PA, depending on the complexity of the shoot. Some shoots Lance was there, some shoots we had a PA there, and then a, a sound sound recordist and a cinematographer, so four people total. Um, and, um, there, but there are some scenes that I filmed myself, so I do know how to shoot and I do shoot sometimes. I don't like to shoot myself because I find that I struggle with maintaining the connection to the protagonists and being focused on the technology and capturing the shot. And sometimes that. I find it, it, it hurts the, the shoot that way. But sometimes if, if a moment is so intimate that having multiple people in, in a given environment will, uh, will hurt the scene, I'll shoot myself. Cause it's basically, I always err on the side of what is going to be in the best interest of, of capturing the, this moment most effectively. And if that means we're not going to get the visuals quite as strong as we had wanted to, or I can't bring a sound person because a boom pole is going to interrupt this scene. I'll just throw a lob on the person myself and run sound directly into the camera. 
I, I always prefer to compromise a little bit technically or aesthetically for the sake of, of, of getting a stronger and more authentic scene. And those are just shoot by shoot by shoot compromises and decisions that we're making in a very agile way. So there's no one size fits all. We had two different cameras for two different kinds of environments. We had a, you know, the Sony FS7 larger camera for when we really felt we could be a little bit more free and it was okay to have a little bit more of a present footprint, you know, boom pole when we're in those kind of environments. But then when you're walking around the halls of the Senate where anything you do can be you know, people, you're, you're walking around, we're running into Bernie Sanders, we're running into Tom Cotton, who's the leading opponent to the bill. How Van and his team are perceived is really important. So if they're, if they're seen with a big media crew following them, it seems like they're lobbying for the bill or advocating for the bill as part of a, you know, publicity thing. As a, it's a media stint, stunt, and it can strip away their genuine investment in this issue. So in those kind of settings, we had a small camera and a Sony a seven and, uh, we would have lobs on the protagonist, but no boom pole. The sound person would be around the corner kind of staying out of the way. And we try to keep ourselves really nimble and small. Um, also the crew on the film was for the most part dedicated throughout the three years of production. Emily Topper was our lead cinematographer she had a relationship with van and the other people on the film she didn't shoot every scene but she shot most of the scenes and that went a long way um so, so it wasn't just a different person showing up on every shoot there were two different lead sound recordists caleb uh, and uh, emily strong you know again you know consistent presence there so yeah, it, it's a, it's a, uh, it, 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 it's a dance. And then to answer your question about just how to navigate moments that are more difficult to film, you know, the the scene that always comes to mind for me is there's the scene toward the end of the film when five of the community leaders from South Central Los Angeles were really upset with Van because he made some remarks at the CPAC conference, the conservative conference, basically uh, praising or speaking to conservatives' leadership on criminal justice reform. And in doing so, he kind of, uh, he, he, he frustrated and upset progressives because they felt that all the work that they've done on criminal justice reform is sort of being swept by the, the wayside just because Trump signed this bill. And they wanted to talk to Van and share with him their frustrations and really their anger at him for, uh, for devaluing the leaders that they looked up to and, and, frankly, the work that they've been doing their whole lives. They did not want to have that conversation on camera, um, and they told me that. And it took me several weeks of really trying to understand why they didn't want me filming and really trying to dissect the, 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 the getting to the nuances of their concerns to talk through a solution and a pathway toward filming it. 
And it turned out that their biggest concern was that they were just so angry with him that they didn't want to be affiliated. They were nervous about just being in a scene with him, being captured with him, because at that point in time, people were so upset with him. And then what I said to them is, look, if you're concerned that of being of being associated with Van because you feel differently than he does about what he said at CPAC, then me capturing you sharing that is going to be the clearest way to make your position evident in the movie. And so it's one of those situations where you really have to like let the temperature sort of drop and look at the concerns, really listen to them and talk it through. And then they, they sort of saw the value of that and said, okay, that makes sense. So then I was able to capture it. And in my opinion, it's one of the richest, uh, most uh, dynamic scenes in the whole film because you're really seeing uh, a group of leaders who have very different opinions on how to make progress on these issues, share those disagreements directly it's a very uncomfortable scene and it shows the messiness of compromise playing out in a way that I think we all experience on a day-to-day basis, but you very rarely see reflected in film. Yeah. I thought the film did a marvelous job of kind of illuminating what politics really looks like. It's not all dramatic and volatile. Some of it's just mechanical, right? A lot of people, a lot of I's to dot and T's to cross. And I think you guys did a great job of capturing that. I'm curious, just as an aside, were there ever moments where the crew size kind of outnumbered the the subjects in the room? I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the scene with Van and Jared Kushner. And again, how natural that seemed and expecting it not to be so natural. Like what was the setup for that uh, interaction? Yeah, the crew, the crew definitely overpower, I mean, oversize the, the protagonist, you know, in particular scenes where there's several scenes in the movie where it's just Van in his apartment. And there, you know, typically there's a camera person, a sound person and me, and, you know, um, the scenes with Jared Kushner, uh, you know, were very difficult to film um, and took multiple conversations with uh, you know, I sat down with Jared, I sat down with Kellyanne Conway, explained to them what, you know, this was not a backdoor gotcha moment, us filming in the Trump White House. I was very clear with them why we were doing it. And, you know, even with people who I disagree with as passionately as I do, it was important to me to be transparent and clear and direct with them. I think, you know, they appreciated that directness. And then, uh, you know, then it took, again, not just building relationships with them and, and clarity with them, but also speaking to their staff. We had to have a call with uh, White House attorneys who we, we basically had to make clear to them that you guys will have no prior review. So we're going to film what happens in this meeting and, and you're not going to see it. You're not going to have, you know, any ability to. And then that was really important for us editorially um, and ethically. Um, and then the camera, the, you know, the setup for those kind of shoots is the, it's the same sort of thing. And, you know, Jared's office was really small. You think the West Wing and, you know, these, you think grand, the West Wing is actually a really small space. It's really intimate and the offices are extremely small. And so we're, you know, in that situation, I'm actually standing outside the room. I can hear the conversation, 
which is really important. But uh, in that room was only the camera person and the sound recorder and the sound recordist recording. And, and, you know, me being an extra body doesn't help at all in a situation like that. So long as I can hear what's happening. So I was sort of hanging outside, listening. And and, and Lance was there as well, hanging outside, listening. And of course, we're in the hallway, blocking up the hallway. And as, as we're standing out there, Mike Pence walks by and sort of bumps into Lance it's <laughs> like oh sorry but I have to move out of the way it's not every day that you just bump into the vice president <laughs> so let me do a quick sidebar I'm, I'm curious and maybe direct this to Lance I, I love that this is a brother combination filmmaking unit and I'm wondering if you could kind of break down the division of duties in uh, creating a film of this sort you've got the Cohen brothers which I think everyone knows about and I think they have a fairly distinct division but what does it look like for you two uh, we've had to figure that out over the years. It's evolved. Um, it's a division or a collaboration um, that goes back to when we were little kids. We've been unofficially, I guess you could say, working together, making things together since my earliest memories. Um, you know, basically, you know, borrowing our parents' then VHS camera and then just track all the technologies over the years as, as the cameras evolved. But, you know, whatever camera was in the house, we always were, um, you know, making things together with the, our friends in the neighborhood. Um, you know, they weren't documentaries at that time. They were spoofs of like our favorite, you know, Hollywood movies. Um, but, uh, even then, I think we kind of gravitated towards certain roles without really understanding it. I mean, I think Brandon always gravitated more towards having a camera in hand. Um, he always tended to be the one that spoke up and directed people. He's really good at mobilizing people, like getting everyone really excited about the project and, you know, what we were trying to do. Um, and thinking about the story. And I guess I was always someone, and, and also Brandon is like really good in the moment, like has a really amazing knack for being able to, even when we were little kids, just zero in on what is this moment? What's happening in this moment? Why is it important for the film? And I think I've always been stronger at the big picture. Like, what does this all add up to? Like, what's the bigger thing that we're uh, working towards? And, you know, I think, like, as that plays out as adults, as big kids, you know, we had to figure out that his skill set lent itself more to being a director and me as a producer. You know, with Brandon, I kind of see it as he has final cut over the story. We're working really collaboratively on all aspects, but at the end of the day, of the project, but at the end of the day, Brandon has final cut over the story. So anything that's actually being decided creatively in the storytelling is at the end of the day, his domain. I, I, I see it as, as the producer, I have final cut over the project and that might sound like the same thing, but I consider the project to be like the film is at the center of the project, but the project is really like, what's going to happen with this film? You know, where is it going to live? Um, who is it going to take to 
make the film between crew and funders and investors and partners. Um, what's our strategy for releasing the film? What kind of technology do we need so that we can actually document these moments and store them in the hard drives and not lose footage? I mean, there's so many different pieces to the puzzle. Um, what money are we going to spend? What money are we not going to spend on the budget? And so I wind up really focusing on those picture, those parts of the puzzle and as a producer. And then ultimately, I'm a very directory producer. So I have a lot of input and Brandon and I talk a lot every day about story um, considerations. And Brandon's a really producery director. He's got a lot to say about all those different aspects of producing. And um, I take, you know, each of us, I think, take each other's input to heart really closely. It also means we fight a lot too. I'm not going to lie. Like, you know, we have strong opinions and, you know, we vocalize them really directly to each other. And, you know, that's, I think the greatest gift is that we love each other very deeply. We're our only siblings. Um, so Brandon's the only brother I've got. So, you know, we love each other. We know that that bond is, you know, infinite and as deep as it can get. And there's really nothing that can break that bond. So we're able to be really direct and honest with each other and know that it's never going to impede on that love and that relationship. And also, nonetheless, when you're that direct and honest with people, you know, <laughs> occasionally it stings too. So you have to manage that part of it as well. And I think we've just kind of learned over the years how to, how to make space for all of that. And I think it, you know, I'll always say that it's made for, I think, really amazing film and filmmaking that I'm so proud of. And it's also just been a, like, you know, my relationship with Brandon is the best part of my life. I want to touch a little bit on something you said in another interview, which is that for every minute of the film, there were many hours, days, even weeks of a relationship building to get the access. Mm -hmm. And I'm, so you, you laid that groundwork in advance and I'm wondering how, how did that process actually look? Is that a team effort or who takes the lead on, softening these people up and getting them kind of to understand what you're doing and to start to let you into their world. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I wish I had some sort of exact proportion or measurement. I, you know, I, I don't think what I was saying was hyperbole because it really is. I mean, the film is 90 minutes long and it took five years to make and two years to release. And probably close to a hundred people working on it, you know, and hundreds of hours of footage. So that ratio of people and hours and money, you know, for every minute is, you know, it's, it's a lot goes into every minute. Maybe the best way to illustrate that would be the people in the film from West Virginia and Los Angeles. And Brandon was talking a little bit about them before. There was so much relationship building that had to happen before a camera could even enter into any of their lives or the group. And then there was a lot of filming that had to happen before any of it was even usable. I mean, Brandon met with each one of the people who were in the film multiple times um, in the kind of pre-production or, you know, early relationship building stage of the process um, and had to, 
have really, really deep conversations with people about their own experiences with addiction and recovery and the criminal justice system, um, hear a lot of their concerns about the risks of participating in the film. You know, when Brandon went to talk to the sheriff for the first time before the um, before he agreed to be a part of the film, you know, when Brandon's walking into the sheriff's office and then the um, behind the sheriff's desk is a big whiteboard that says the media does not define us, you know, and you're dealing with people that have unfortunately been misrepresented and harmed, as Brandon was mentioning earlier, by the media so poorly. And then you're trying to make a case for how what we're trying to do is different. Um, it's just, it takes so much of um, putting yourself out there and not just um, learning about them, but also them learning about you. And that's also part of, I think one of the things that's probably really opaque in the making of a documentary, especially a documentary like this, is just like all the sharing that you do about yourself so other people can, who are in the film can learn about you and just know who you are as a person. Sometimes in some documentaries that shows up, you know, where the filmmaker is a protagonist, um, even when it's not direct, like in the case of this film, we're not in the film, you don't hear a voice. Um, but for all those scenes and moments to exist, like there had to be a lot of sharing that, you know, we, um, we put out on the table just about our own lives and we broke bread with every single one of um, the people from West Virginia and Los Angeles multiple times um, and just got to know them individually before they were even brought together as a group. And then there was a whole process where you see a very small piece of it in the film where they're getting to, to, to know each other. And even still that small part is um, I think one of the parts of the film that people love the most um, and resonates the most with people. But there were, um, you know, the, the diner scene, that first diner scene and the few scenes in West Virginia that come up in the first third of the film when they, the group first meets each other, that was part of like a five day um, exchange. And so there's like so many uh, moments that happen in the course of even just those four or five days that could have been a movie or a whole series into itself. Um, where relationships are being formed and tears are shed and arguments are happening and hugs, you know, are, are, are being shared. And I don't know, maybe that whole series of five days is like three minutes in the film, max. You're trying to just have faith along the way that all of this is going to add up into a really meaningful and compelling story that also makes sense and has a beginning, middle, and end. Um, in those moments, it's admittedly not very clear how you're going to get there. But um, I think you have very, very real, profound moments or points of connection with people along the way that transcend surface level connections that I think, you know, reinforce that that you're you're moving in the right direction. The scenes with the LA folks and the West Virginia folks, that, those are the it's really the emotional heart of the film and it's the part of the film you just almost want to hug. I mean, it's just so, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. so wholesome and affirming in all the ways that make us human. 
Brandon mentioned earlier that uh, this is a verite film and you guys are verite filmmakers. I'm I'm wondering, like, strictly speaking, that would mean that these two groups of people from separate sides of the country kind of came into the story without you being involved. But I'm, I'm guessing it might have been a little bit more intricate than that. Can you tell me how that part of the story was developed and what your role was in bringing that to the film? The idea of cinema verite as an art form, as a tradition, is extremely varied in the way different filmmakers apply that uh, methodology and that tradition. And, you know, for Lance and I, we learned how to be filmmakers largely from our mentors at Cartemquin Films based in Chicago, who uh, produced most, you know, notably the film Hoop Dreams, more recently films like Minding the Gap and Abacus and um, The Interrupters, you know, Gordon Quinn and the whole team there really kind of helped teach Lance and I a way of documenting people's lives in a way that allows you to authentically capture what's happening, but it's not this removed fly on the wall you know, you're just, you just happen to be there and you're filming things and life is just unfolding in front of the camera. It's not that at all. Um, there is an element of that, but to get to the, the goal is not, how do I be a fly on the wall? The goal is how do I access something that is as close to the truth and the layers and nuance and dimensionality of the truth as possible. And often that involves a much more complicated dynamic than just unobtrusively filming. So in the case of the LA West Virginia part of the film, Van basically told Lance and I that him and his team were going to bring a group of leaders together from South Central Los Angeles, and a group of leaders from West Virginia. Van wanted mostly Black, Latino leaders in South Central LA who were progressive and conservative white leaders in West Virginia to demonstrate what's possible in bringing together a coalition from two different parts of the country, two different political views, different races around their shared experience with the addiction crisis. When he told us that he was planning to do that, he hadn't reached out to or connected with the five leaders in West Virginia that are ultimately featured in the film in this organizing effort or, or Los Angeles. And so what we decided was that in his process of finding the right people, we wanted to do that with him. The reality was we were going to document that organizing effort for as long as it you know went on. And we wanted to make sure that the film was not an afterthought, that the documentary was not this thing that came on, you know, later, that when they were first being introduced to Van and his team, they were being introduced to us. So I, you know, I went to West Virginia and I met with different leaders and um, was, you know, intimately working with Van on who was selected 
that both served the purposes of the organizing effort that he had in mind and also had the you know willingness and openness and belief in the film and documenting that journey so to be included in the documentary that's the way that collaboration went and some might look at that and say okay well is, then is that reality tv if you're participating in the selection of of the protagonists in your film and i don't think it is because again i think it's a it, it, documentary it's it's not journalism this it's a it's a you're trying to get to some version of truth and my way of doing that or our way of doing that is one that we maintain enough distance where we can be tough and honest toward the people in our film but we also are very deeply embedded and connected with them these are deep creative collaborations i'm talking to them about my family my love life like they know people in my in my home life. I'm not. I'm bringing a lot of myself to the table, and vice versa. It makes the relationship building more complicated and harder. But at the end of the day, it allows you to reach a deeper place. So, you know, Van and I very much collaborated on that effort. Really, on the whole film, he always respected the fact that I that we had editorial control over the film. And at the end of the day, it was our story that we were telling. Um, but we always respected that this is his life's work and he's the one on the front lines here. He's the expert. And, you know, we're not going to sort of keep him at arm's length. And so that was a, it was a risk to have that kind of way of creating, but I think it was a risk worth taking because then he trusted us and let us in, in a way that I don't think he would have. And frankly, at the end of the day, he never censored or asked us to censor anything in the film because that level of trust was there. So, you know, I can't say that with every protagonist, but Van was somebody who understand, who understood the kind of film we were trying to make. And uh, I, I think, you know, took a big leap of faith on us it, being a public figure and letting it's very common for a film to be made about a public figure. It's very common for um, what what's trickier or the tricky dance that we had to go through is that Van is a very controversial public figure. And <clears throat> we wanted a film that could both empathize deeply with his point of view why he was doing what he was doing and also could empathize and connect and really like elevate his critics as well and their points of view as well and not just have them appear in the film as antagonists but advocates who have been on the front lines of these fights for decades who have very legitimate grievances or disagreements and that was the mission of the film. And I was very clear, Lance and I were very clear with Van from the get-go that that was the kind of film we wanted to make. And to Van's credit, he believed in, you know, the whole notion of, that he was after was bridge building, was how do we bring people together with different points of view? So he believed in the value of a film that represented that diversity of views, even if it meant that, his stances and his views would be deeply challenged, which I think they are in the film. 
Yeah, I can actually imagine a film in an alternate universe where that part is left out, where the two sides are basically right and left, and then the further left, I guess, would just maybe not have made the cut. This is such an honest film, and it seems to square with your worldview as a as a filmmaking partnership that you're trying to like turn the temperature down and kind of like amplify the more prosaic truth of the world. And I also saw City of Trees, and I thought that was just beautifully done. This is how government actually looks when it filters down through all the topsoil and gets to <laughs> to the roots, right? And I'm I'm curious if you could just tell me, like, is that something that you guys are very specifically and intentionally trying to achieve, which is like this kind of sober storytelling? If you think about the mass media as sort of junk food, that you guys are the well-balanced meal that offsets it. I, I, oh, I love it. I, I really do love being thought of as the broccoli of documentary. Or at least, yeah, the slow food. I mean, yeah, in a, in a sense, I guess that the challenge with, Broccoli is that there's a lot of people who prefer French fries to broccoli. So broccoli has a hard time marketing itself without dousing itself in butter. Um, <laughs> you know, like, so it's, uh, you, you know, you, you don't want to be, I guess, so far on the end of the healthy spectrum that no one wants to, not to carry the metaphor too far, but that no one wants to, you know, taste it. So it is a balancing act, but I guess at the end of the day, you know, I mean, hopefully you're getting some sense through talking with us of just, you know, our morals and our ethics and who we are as people and even just in our relationship with each other. Like I said, I think I, one of the ways that I show love to my brother is by arguing with him. You know, I think Brandon, Brandon, I don't know, tell me if you disagree, but I think pretty much you always know how I feel about something, right? Yes. I think what it does is there's not a feeling of like either of us are hiding things. And also when conflict emerges, it's typically resolved very quickly because our muscles are very flexed on how to do that. Yeah. Like we try, I think we've tried to almost have like a 24 hour limit <laughs> to like how long you know, a disagreement is allowed to like sit in the air. So, you know, we're very, very direct with each other about disagreement, but then we try to resolve it very rapidly so that you can go to bed at night with love and not anger. That's something that's really, really important to me. I think like where that then cascades into the filmmaking and also just the kinds of stories and themes that we're interested in is that you know, I'm passionate about a lot of these issues, criminal justice and the environment. And um, in particular, when you're talking about City of Trees and the first step and addiction and recovery, like these are things that I care about so deeply and also, and they're so complex and controversial issues. And there is no easy way to resolve any of these kinds of huge uh, you know, national or even global issues. And a lot of the times where they show up the most is through interpersonal relationships, working well or not working well and breaking down. And I think it's really amazing that actually so many of these huge, huge, huge issues that the nation, even the world is grappling with, oftentimes just show up through interpersonal relationships and whether they're working well or not. 
you know, wars are fought over these things. Bills and treaties are passed or fall short based on relationships. So many of the the big kind of faceless things that we talk about or feel that, are, that impact our lives actually break down or kind of boil down, I think, to individual relationships in a lot of respects. And I think that's the part of a lot of these, you know, issues and movements that often doesn't get discussed or certainly shown in filmmaking and storytelling, or if it does, it gets reduced or simplified or sensationalized. I feel like that's been a really unfortunate aspect of the direction that a lot of media and storytelling has taken just even in the last decade. Um, and my experience has been that when you've tried, when we've tried to represent these kinds of narratives in this way, people respond very, very positively because they feel a sense of relief that they see something on screen that actually reflects their own experiences and they feel that they're being respected and not being preached to or, you know, forced to think a certain way or told that they're dumb or left out. And um, that kind of respect, you gain something from that. Is That's my belief. And um, I think it moves the needle on some of these issues by being able to create that kind of space. It's a disarming space. So many of these kinds of issues are built off an assumption or you almost kind of assume that people just already have their position staked in the ground and you have to come into the conversation with your armor on to just protect that that position. And, um, I think that's where just a lot of the intensity comes from in that we see play out all, you know, in all corners of society. And then to be able to walk into a space and know that you can still hold on to your position, your belief system, but also be able to ex be exposed to something or someone's point of view that's different than yours. And just know that both of those things can coexist and you might even learn something from that exposure, that point of connection. I think it's a disarming thing. And you can kind of let your shoulders down a little bit and engage with someone else's humanity. And I think that that's where we grow as like a community and as a, even like a species. And so I just want to try to be a part of using our art to contribute to that. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> it sometimes means that it's harder to, you know, distribute the things that we make in mainstream settings and you know have it go gangbusters um but i'd much rather have you know people engage with things meaningfully um and hold on you know to our integrity than you know create fake stakes or cause harm i did want to ask you about th this is kind of this kind of shows up in some of the scenes with uh kellyanne conway and jared kushner that you, you did a really good job of humanizing them without apologizing for them or taking a position on who they are. I like Kellyanne Conway in particular has this reputation of being kind of a mouthpiece and somebody who will overtly lie in front of the camera. And yet you capture a side of her that's respectful and present and even empathetic. And I'm wondering, was that just a, uh, like a side effect 
of the story? Or did you want to also capture the fact that the people in Washington are more layered than we give them credit for? Um, Kellyanne Conway, Jared Kushner, all, all of these people that are depicted in the film, these are individuals that are making extremely consequential decisions and actions that are causing enormous harm to communities and issues that Lance and I care about deeply. And at the same time, they also happened to be working on one issue that criminal justice reform and the First Step Act that was going to have a very positive impact on tens of thousands of people's lives. Um, The First Step Act to date has resulted in the release of tens of thousands of people from federal prisons. It reformed the federal criminal justice system in very, very important ways. That contradiction is something that Van, Lewis, Jessica had to sit with in their advocacy, and we had to sit with that as filmmakers. And we felt it was very important to both make clear the damage and harm that the Trump administration was creating in the world. And so we interviewed leaders speaking to that. We show archival that illustrates that. We, you know, not that the public needs reminders of that, or at least most of the, the, you know, a lot of the public that watched the film, it was important to, to highlight those reprehensible actions that were being taken and also to highlight these positive steps that they were taking on this one issue. And that is an uncomfortable thing for progressive audiences to sit with. And I think it is a discomfort that is a very important part of watching this film. And I think it's something that when we were making the film, it, uh, it, it was a very uncomfortable thing to go through. And then we emerged from it with a level of nuance and openness toward how coalitions can be built, how policy can be passed, how relationships can be formed with people you disagree with. And our hope is that the film can inspire that same kind of openness amongst its viewers. We've screened the film over a hundred times across the country in deeply progressive communities. We've screened it in South Central LA, Philadelphia, Denver, you know, the Bay Area, like, you know, places that are very blue with advocacy groups and advocates that disagreed with the First Step Act because it didn't go far enough. We've also screened the film in Arkansas and Iowa and, uh, you know, very conservative, Texas, very conservative spaces as well. And what's happened is as, as a result of including protagonists in the film fairly and empathetically from both sides of the aisle, from a variety of political views, the film has shown to have a very unique ability to be shown in different 
two different audiences and demographics in a way that I think is very unique for a documentary film. And we've had audiences that have been extremely uh, politically diverse watch the same movie. There's not a Republican version of the movie and a Democrat version of the movie. It's the same movie. And the hope is that they see people that represent closely or close enough to their point of view. So they trust the film. And then they're given a point of empathy into somebody who they didn't agree with or maybe used to think poorly of. And they're not, the goal is not to have them walk out of the theater and change political views or agree with somebody they didn't agree with. But if they walk out of the theater feeling a little more understanding to why somebody they disagree with feels the way they do and a little less hatred and vitriol, then that is some serious medicine that could reduce the inflammation and allow for more progress on a myriad of different issues. So I know you guys need to be running along, but before I go, I wanted to ask, what's next for you? Like, you obviously have this canon of work that is incredibly effective, and I'm wondering, are you going to continue along these lines, or do you think you're going to branch out in, in your near future? We're definitely going to continue making films. It's like I said, we've been doing it since we're little kids. And actually, one of the things we're really interested in is fiction filmmaking. It's something that when both of us were kids and also students, we were studying more fiction filmmaking than doc filmmaking and happened to go down this road of making nonfiction films now for the past almost 15 years. But, um, and there's some stories that we've wanted to tell that I think are no less truthful in terms of the emotionality, but they're deriving from our imagination instead of from real people we're meeting with our camera or people or characters who are inspired by real people. And so that's, that's I think, the next big frontier creatively. And then we've also been helping some other filmmakers who have nonfiction projects um, get their films finished and seen. And so, you know, not being in the lead director or producer chair, but, you know, more as kind of an advisor or consulting filmmaker and trying to help them or help take experiences that we've had and, you know, help see where we can apply those experiences to help them get new, important nonfiction work out there. Because as you know, I'm sure you've been following the news unfortunately it gotten really really hard to get especially independent work out there so you know i think we've cracked the code and found some ways to get independent work made and seen um i'm just trying to also help other worth you know worthy stories you know find find a path well lance brandon this has been such a pleasure and for the record i don't see your films as broccoli i Think of them more, <laughs> okay. more of a plump, ripe avocado with <laughs> olive oil on it. It's so okay. um, just know that I, I think you're making the world a better place just by the approach you're taking. And uh, I, I couldn't have enjoyed the two films I've seen anymore, and I look forward to many more. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate moving from broccoli to avocado. That, 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 that's a promotion. I was just going to say, for, for any of the listeners want to learn more about our work, our uh, production company here in DC. It's called Meridian Hill Pictures. It's meridianhillpictures.com. If anybody wants to just learn more about us, learn more about the films we've made, um, reach out to us. We're, we're very accessible. I really, really appreciate 
this conversation, just your interest in our films and having this conversation. So really an honor to be here with you. Thanks again to the Kramer Brothers. Their film, The First Step, can be seen on all the major streamers. I'm very serious when I say get this one in your queue. It's the kind of film we all need to see in 2023. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time.